is Teachin' Books, a podcast all about the ways people teach, learn, and work with literature. On today's episode, I am also Jessica McDonald, <laughs> um, as usual. But on today's episode, I am doing something a little bit different. Uh, you might know what I'm doing if you follow the podcast on Instagram or on Twitter or on any of the other places that I've posted about this. I'm highlighting today a few of the listener emails or questions that have come in <laughs> over the course of the last few months of me podcasting, actually really over the course of the last month or so. And yeah, I just wanted to take this chance to kind of do a little bit of a catch-up episode, um, give myself some breathing room between editing and prepping other kinds of episodes, and also just highlight some of the dialogue that goes on around this podcast between myself and listeners who are generally friends and family and, you know, my book club members and that sort of thing. But that's the life of a small but growing baby podcast. All right. So a couple of the emails that sort of spurred on my desire to do this episode were from um, Jean from my Alice Monroe book club, actually. Uh, in one of her emails to me, Jean was responding to episode 12, which was, if you recall, the interview with Taylor Brown about being a tour guide in Ontario and Quebec. And in that email, uh, Jean shared with me something that I really wanted to share with you as sort of like a follow up to those episodes, I should say to Taylor's episode, but also to an earlier episode. In fact, the first ever official episode that I put out, which was an interview with Jade McDougall. In both of those episodes, the topic of statue activism came up, and especially I think statues of John A. McDonald and, um, you know, I, recall asking Taylor about how she dealt with talking about statue activism when she was tour guiding around Ottawa, let's say. And I asked Jade McDougall about how she teaches um, Marilyn Dumont's poem Letter to Sir John A. Macdonald in the context of statue activism. And so this is something that's come up at least a few times on the podcast. And Jean mentioned that um, she drew me to the work of Dr. Tanya Davidson at Carleton University in Anthropology and Sociology. Jean says, I took a great learning and retirement course from her in 2019 called Ottawa, Ottawology, Ottawaology, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, a critical study of the nation's capital, which Jean says was a feminist alternative look at Ottawa history. And she's done a lot of work in the social life of statues. So Jean was kind enough to send me a link to Dr. Tanya Davidson's faculty page, which I will put in the show notes. I haven't gotten the chance to actually um, access any of her papers yet, but just from her faculty profile, I can tell that she's done a lot of work that's relevant to some of the things that have been coming up on the podcast, like around monuments and Canadian war memorials, quote unquote, imperial nostalgia. She has a paper that um, talks about that topic pedagogy and learning in relation to Canada's memorials and monuments. So yeah, this is somebody whose work I thought I would share with you if you, like me, are interested in the ways that teaching literature can be intersected with 
teaching real world sort of statue activism, or as Tanya Davidson puts it, the social life of statues. So thank you so much to Jean for pointing me to that scholar. I'm really looking forward to checking out that work and maybe hearing more and thinking more about statues on the podcast as we go along. Oh, uh, then another email from Jean that I wanted to highlight was a response to episode four, an interview with Alice Monroe book club members. Jean said, um, I've been in a neighborhood book club for 20 years. Members have come and gone, and there are still three of the original members of a membership of 11. And they continue to meet via Zoom, which has improved attendance, but they miss the wine and snacks. And this had me thinking about something I've actually asked folks about, I think on Instagram or on one of the podcast social media accounts, which is, have you ever been in a long-standing, many years long book club? And if so, the thing that I really want to know is, what do you think makes that long-standing book club successful? I've heard about a lot of people's experiences with book clubs being ones where the book clubs just sort of fizzle out pretty quickly. And so I'm always really intrigued when I hear about these really long-standing, almost permanent-sounding book clubs that folks are in. So if you have a story about a book club that you're in, or if you have opinions on what makes a long-standing book club so successful, what makes your book club experience successful, I really want to hear from you. So please do get in touch. And if you're interested in the topic of book clubs, um, we do have another episode of Teach and Books on that topic, which is episode 14, Interview with Rebecca Ludolf, where she talks about her experience reading uh, The Kappa Child in a book club. So check that one out if you're interested in more book club content. I feel like I will continue to return to the topic of book clubs on this podcast for sure. Okay, Devin wants to know if there is anything I have to do before I record. And I was thinking about this question and thinking already that I'm probably going to provide a far too detailed answer (laughs) to it because that's just what I do when somebody asks me, like, how was your day? And then here's a list of 30 things I did. But for those who are interested, so it kind of depends on whether I'm doing a solo episode or an interview recording. Um, If I'm doing a solo episode, um, for example, I, first of all, always get ready enough to feel like I'm some sort of professional because I just learned really early on that if I'm talking into a microphone but wearing, like, pajamas and cracker crumbs from the night before – I (laughs) can't really even muster the confidence to speak into the mic or form coherent thoughts. So get ready enough to feel like I'm a professional. Usually put on some sort of bold lip look. That's another thing that helps me, you know, summon the energy that I need to be a shy person who comes into my room and <laughs> records this podcast by myself. Usually, a, you know, a, a lip look of the bold, bright purple or red variety. Um, when I'm alone, I set up Carl, my Build-A-Bear moose, so that he's sitting upright kind of across from me right before the recording starts, right before I record. Um, actually, he's just always on my desk right now. I'm literally looking at him right now. Sup, Carl? He's always on my desk, but I make sure that he's kind of upright and like actually looking at me like he's a listener. Oh, he's so cute. Um, I get my notes out. Sometimes those notes are almost nothing and sometimes they're more um, full, <laughs> depending on how much prep I feel like I've had to do or how confident I feel in whatever I'm talking about. 
Um, what else do I do? I get some water, sometimes tea. Um, I don't have a really um formal recording setup, so right before I record, I just set up my mic on this kind of cushiony washcloth and I set up my headphones. Um, I will continue to fiddle with that and work on that and maybe pursue recording in my closet again like I tried at the very beginning. Um, we'll see. We'll see how things go as things proceed. The only real ritual I have before I record is when I'm setting up my headphones, I look up and listen to and watch some amount of Haim's music video for The Steps. You may know that already if you follow the podcast Instagram because I posted about it once. But basically, early on in the podcast uh, journey, I just started to always look up Haim's music video for The Steps when I was setting up my headphones, and it became a kind of ritual. So sometimes, like, I'll skip the ad, and then sometimes I'll listen to just a few seconds of the music video and watch it. Or sometimes, like today, I just watch the whole thing because I really like that music video. So that would be the only kind of ritual that I have right before I record, and then I'm ready to roll. Um, if I'm doing an interview, I basically do many of the same things, but then there's also, of course, the way earlier interview prep, which is I form the questions ahead of time, send them to the guest. I reread the questions again so that I remember what I was supposed to ask. I reread the text that we're dealing with or read it for the first time. I read any course materials the guest sends me or any, you know, materials that they send me at all ahead of time. So there's all of that prep work that goes into an interview episode, but that's not really right before I record, which I think was more the question. Thank you, Dev, for that question. So Chad asks, what is your favorite type of student to teach? And my first initial sort of gut response, I guess, when I read that question was like, all kinds of students, varieties of students. And that's not just because I was sort of, you know, just giving a bullshit diplomatic answer, but it's because I know that there's such productive, rich, fruitful, I don't know, exchanges that come from having a group of students in one course that are really diverse in their perspectives, that are all different. Um, so it's hard to say, like, this is my favorite type of student <laughs> and maybe even troubling to say that. But actually, maybe the real answer is that I feel that it's so energizing to teach students who come into class thinking that English is bullshit and literature doesn't really matter and all of this is kind of silly and I just want to go back to, you know, my science classes. But then um, at the end of the class, these are students that sometimes tell me like, oh, I took this poetry class because I had to, and now I'm actually buying poetry to read for fun. Or they'll say like, I'm in engineering and I thought I would hate this class, but it's my favorite class. So I think in the end, those are the kinds of students that, or the kinds of moments where um, they end up energizing me as a teacher. Because it's obviously really easy to teach students who are keeners <laughs> and who, you know, have long ago, who are keeners for English and who have long ago sort of familiarized themselves with the literary canon and they are fully invested in the discipline of English and um, they read for fun and that sort of thing. But actually, I find like it's the students who push back a little bit and maybe present a little bit more resistance to the subject who end up being energizing students for me. Thank you to Chad for that question. 
Okay, um, Julia asks, what is one of the most challenging books or essays you've ever taught? Why was it challenging to teach? And okay, again, I have sort of a first thought, second thought answer here. My first thought was, I just look back and remember, horrifyingly, the many, many times as a TA early, early on in my teaching experiences when, you know, you're teaching somebody else's syllabus and you're teaching texts that you might not be familiar with, you can feel really overwhelmed with material that really isn't in your existing field of knowledge that you haven't read before. It's not in your emerging specialty. Maybe it's not even in your historical period. It's not in your sort of geographical focus. Maybe it doesn't align with your generic interests. Plus, as a TA, um, at least a TA who's early on in their sort of teaching journey, You're still figuring out how to teach, how you teach, the mechanics of teaching, the logistics, the values that you hold being a teacher. So those early days for me were filled with all sorts of challenging texts because they were texts that presented a situation for me where I did not know what I was doing. So, for example, I remember in those early years teaching Beowulf before I felt like I had any right to teach Beowulf. I was just sort of like floundering and hoping that I was doing that text justice because I was a TA and again, teaching somebody else's syllabus and teaching a text that I didn't really have strong familiarity with. I remember even teaching some uh, like a text like Kubla Khan in another year, and I wasn't even sure that I knew what was going on in that poem. But then I was, you know, pushed into this teaching assistant context where I actually had to try to assume some knowledge over this poem that I was like, oh my god, I have no idea what's going on. So those are early teaching experiences of a couple of different texts that I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. But I realized sort of looking back on those experiences, even though they mortify me in some ways, that those were actually really fundamental to me in realizing that teaching from a place of uncertainty can be It can feel really scary, but it can be really transformative and it can be powerful. For me, I find now it can really work against the power dynamics of the classroom and can help build real, humble, (laughs) dialogic, sort of collaborative learning between all participants, instructors and students both. So I actually find that those early experiences of uncertainty, even though they were challenging and scary, they probably pushed me into a way of teaching that I actually think is more suited to the kinds of goals I have around, I guess, troubling the existing or conventional power dynamics of a Canadian classroom, like a a university classroom in Canada. Okay, but my second thought, and maybe more specifically than that previous answer is that one of the texts I was so excited to teach but ended up being a little bit tricky was Bear by Marian Ingle. And if you're not familiar, this novel features a relationship between the main character, Lou, um, and a bear that gets sexual, like so the relationship gets sexual. Or at least it includes acts that humans would generally read as sexual. The reason why I found this one challenging unexpectedly, was because it was difficult for me to negotiate and kind of work around students' disgust 
about the book, their really passionate reactions to it. Like I had a lot of students who really hated this book. And I just found it a bit of a struggle, maybe because I didn't actually really expect that reaction. I found it to be a little bit of a struggle to lead students and myself back into more critical territory where we could think about the why of what happens in the book or the so what of what happens in the book. Why is there this relationship built between the main character and the bear? Like that's a critical question and we should be asking that question, but it was hard to, again, negotiate just the immediate passionate responses of students who hated that book. I actually might end up talking about this in a future podcast episode. I think I will plan to one day, but in the end, at the end of our study of Bear in that class, this was a third-year Canadian literature class, I ended up doing a a sort of impromptu lesson on, quote, self-critical inquiry. And I talked in that lesson about how it can be useful, especially with a text that sort of troubles you or feels controversial or really provokes you in these deep ways. It can be useful to turn the critical eye back on ourselves and our reactions as readers. Like, why might I be feeling disgust? Um, I feel like this is wrong. Why? How are my reactions to this book saying something about what the book might be doing, what it might be playing with, what it might be pushing against? So yeah, that was an unexpectedly challenging book for those reasons. And I would actually really love to hear from others who have taught Bear and who maybe have hopefully more successful stories teaching Bear. Um, it's Bear is one of the few texts I've ever had where I actually got student evals that said, no more Bear. Like, don't put Bear <laughs> in, the, in the syllabus in the future. So I, I was like, oh, shit. Okay, um, I'll have to rethink how I teach this. So yeah, let me know how it went if you taught Bear or have taught Bear before. I would love to hear from you. Thank you, Julia, for that question. All right, thank you so much to everyone for listening. Thank you so much to folks for submitting questions. I am going to cut it off there, and I hope that, I think that we'll probably be doing more of these in the future, maybe one every six months or so. I'm not sure. I guess it will depend on if listeners have any questions for me, but it's nice to have a little bit of a catch-up breather episode every once in a while. Feel free to, on an ongoing basis, send me any questions or comments you have about the podcast. Of course, I would love to read or hear them. Teachinbookspod at gmail.com. You know the email. And you can always DM me on the podcast Instagram or Twitter accounts as well. I love getting questions (laughs) or getting literally any kind of feedback about the podcast episodes. So don't be shy. Send it in. Um, I'd love to hear from you. This episode was recorded on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. This past weekend in Saskatoon at the art festival Nuit Blanche Winter's End, I had the chance to go and see a project called Uncensored, part of which was put up at the Francis Morrison Library downtown. Uncensored is a project done by two artists based in Saskatoon on Treaty 6, Jody Larat, a Nahio artist from Kauza's First Nation and Poundmaker Cree Nation, and Melody Wood, a Nahio artist from Little Pine First Nation. Um, Let me read to you how they describe the project. 
Uncensored is a series of photos and video that celebrates queer and trans bodies in a heteronormative world. Visual representation is important, especially in a small northern center. Community building and many meaningful conversations took place while creating this body of work. Varied emotions, issues, struggles, and deeper friendships were forged through the process. These conversations came through the finished photos while still holding on to the original theme censorship, body positivity, and sex positivity. Uncensored celebrates what sets local models from our rainbow community apart from the rest. I'll put the link in the show notes to where you can find the photographs and the video from this project. I really encourage you to go check it out. They are extremely cool, powerful, provocative photos. And I was so happy to see them sort of displayed on the... I guess, the window of this library. It just seemed like a cool... I mean, we've been thinking on this podcast about public poetry and public art recently, and these sort of sensual, sexual, gender-playful, gender-queer photos being displayed at the Francis Morrison Downtown Library right on the front. It was just a cool juxtaposition of kind of place or space and place, the library, with content, the content of this project. Um, at that link, you can also find a little bit more about Jody and Melody's work and where to find them on Instagram. So check out the link. Thank you to Diella Swain for the podcast music. You can find more of their work at soundcloud.com slash S. That's D-Y-A-L-L-A-S. Thank you to Jade McDougall at muskrat-hands.com for the awesome podcast graphics. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at teachinbookspod, or you can get in touch at teachinbookspod at gmail.com. Don't be afraid to share, spread the word uh, about the podcast, rate and review if your podcasting app allows you to do so. All of that really helps me out, and I would be very appreciative if you would do that. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to this special Q&A episode Join me next week on Teachin' Books. Books.